Welcome to Gospel City Church. I'm Trent. They let me be the pastor around here, and it is a joy to gather with you this morning. Open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you're new to Gospel City Church, just FYI, Bibles are essential equipment around here. So if you didn't bring a Bible to church this week, make sure you bring a Bible next week because the pastor's not smart enough to create stuff. He just has to open this old book and just try to make some sense of it and then apply it to our lives so that we respond in repentance and faith every Sunday. As you're finding your place to 2 Timothy chapter 4, I want to remind you that we are celebrating two huge occasions on this day. One of them I'm sure you're very aware of. The other one may have snuck up on you. Did you know that today, July the 4th, 2021, is the one year anniversary of opening up this worship space at Gospel City Church? Praise the Lord. How many of you that snuck up on you? Like, man, it's been a year. Some of you have just, I, I saw somebody in church today that had, this is their first time back, and we're welcoming people back. As you feel safe coming back to church, if you're still watching online, come back. It's safe. There's friendly people here, and we want to worship together with you. Now, I want to give you a little update because this is exciting news, okay? So, a year ago when we opened up this new space, you know, we were in the middle of the pandemic, and everybody was like, what are we going to do about church? And people kind of eased their way back. In. A year ago, when we opened up this space, we opened it up with a remaining loan balance on the construction project of six hundred of nine hundred and sixty thousand dollars. The total cost of construction was seven point eight million, and so all these things that we've seen upgrades around here, that was the price tag. And to Last year at this point, 6.9 had been given toward that when we opened this place up, leaving a remaining balance of about $960,000. Good news was there was over $1 million in outstanding pledges to cover that. So we were in great shape. So here we are a year later. You want the update? Do you see this little, oh, look at what happened to that. Now, I want you to notice something. We are now, as of today, only $140,000 away from completely paying off everything we owe in order for us to be debt-free as a church again, we need to pay off $140,000. Most of you owe more on your house than the church owns on, owes on this building, okay? So here's the thing. Um, there's still $780,000 in outstanding pledges. You people have promised that amount to cover that amount. That's great, okay? Would you join me in prayer about something? I want to believe God to take care of this in the next two weeks. How many of you could get excited about coming to church debt-free in two weeks? All right? So, in, that wasn't a very gracious response. I would be excited. Would you be excited about that? Absolutely. All right. Now, if you're clapping, that means you need to check your bank account and uh, write a check. And let's take care of this over the next um, two weeks. Some of you are brand new to church. You, you didn't, <laughs> you didn't pledge anything. And uh, you are so grateful for the church that spent $7.8 million to create a space for you. And you've shown up since then. Praise the Lord. You ought to be thankful for people that have created a space for you. Could I ask you, maybe you're 
somebody that could help with this. Let's knock that out so that we can be debt-free as a church. So we're celebrating the one-year anniversary of opening this new space for the glory of the Lord and for the purpose of making disciples. And of course, the second occasion that we're celebrating today is Independence Day in the United States. Um, most of us are familiar with the opening paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, which reads, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with, uh, with certain unalienable rights, and that among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How many of you have heard that before? Yeah, you went to eighth grade, right, great. So most of you probably aren't familiar with the last part of the Declaration of Independence. Listen to the last part. For the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance upon the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. Do you understand that the declaration of independence from a tyrannical king in Great Britain was just as much a declaration of dependence upon King Jesus. And so in the year 1776, we declared independence from Britain while declaring dependence upon God. And yet here we are 245 years later and so many people in this free nation are declaring their independence from God and their dependence on self. So what are we doing today as we gather to worship Jesus? It is a declaration of our dependence on divine providence, upon his grace and his goodness, that he would look upon us, that he would have mercy on us, and that we would connect to him. And so that's what we're going after. And I, I was so blessed by the first 30 minutes just declaring the name of Jesus. It's all about his name. So I'm grateful to live in a country where I can do every Sunday what I'm about to do, which is read from the Bible in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. Follow along with me. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. That's the title of the message today, Fulfill Your Ministry. We're going to see six things that are necessary if we're going to obey that command to fulfill our ministry. Verse 6, for I am ready, am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Verse 8, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. Of course, we've been studying verse by verse through this book of 2 Timothy. It was the last letter, it was the last words of the Apostle Paul written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to his young protege, Timothy, who's pastoring a church full of grumpy people in Ephesus. And so Paul is passing the baton to Timothy, saying, 
my course is about finished, I've run the race, the time of my departure is about done, and so you're going to have to fulfill your ministry. And so, uh, we can learn a lot of lessons. Let me tell you who I have in mind as we read this passage of Scripture. First of all, I have people in mind who are in this room right now, and you have served so faithfully in ministry. You've led a small group. You've raised your children. You've been faithful to live out your faith in the workplace or in the school. And quite honestly, if you were honest, you would say, I'm exhausted. I am tired. You may be tempted to give up. The opposition may be strong, and you're wondering whether or not it's worth it. And God's word to you today is, fulfill your ministry. Don't give up. Secondly, I'm thinking of some people, honestly, who are sitting on the sidelines. You didn't come to church today to pour out. You came to church today to fill up. You're so grateful for all of these ministries that exist in order to protect and provide for your soul. Listen, ministry is not one directional. Ministry is two directional. If you are a member of the body of Christ, you are a minister. And God's message to you today is, get off the sidelines. Get in the game. Fulfill your ministry. If you're watching online, I encourage you, get back to church. I, I trust that you appreciate the ministry that's coming at you today. But honestly, if you're not at church, there's no ministry coming back this direction. We need you. This church needs you. The world needs a church that is fulfilling its ministry. Third group of people I have in mind today is people who have been pace setters for the rest of us in ministry. There are some older saints in this room. You have prayed. You have given. You have served. You have done the work of an evangelist. And the time of your departure is probably nearer than it is for the rest of us. And I just simply want to say to you, thank you for fulfilling your ministry. The context here that Paul is writing this letter, as we talked about, is to a pastor who is, he's timid, he's afraid, he's wondering, how am I going to do this without my mentor, Paul? And if you've been following along the last few weeks, he's talked about some of the grumpy people that... Timothy's going to have to minister to. He said these people are going to be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. They're not going to have any hunger. They won't endure sound doctrine. And as a result, they're going to be tempted to wander off into myths and believe conspiracy theories. And Paul says to Timothy, welcome to ministry. Fulfill it. Don't give up. Don't tap out. Fulfill your ministry. Uh, many of you know that before... Um, uh, Andrea and I threw ourselves into planting this church. We served in a ministry called Life Action Ministries, just up the road here in Buchanan, Michigan. And for 15 years, we traveled in a trailer, raising our family, living on church parking lots, living on financial support of people that loved us enough to send us, you know, 10 or $15 a month. And, and that's the way we did life. And we ministered to over 400 churches. And, and um, you know, there were some exciting parts of that. Obviously, you get to travel. And, and yet, there's some challenging parts of that, living in an RV. Um, you know, all of those different things. And I remember occasionally people would come up to me and they would say, wow, 
I wish I could be in ministry like you. I remember this, this one uh, young man came up to me. He was a young father, and yet he'd already produced six children. And, and he came up with his children running around and his wife trying to keep the children, you know, correct in church. And, and he comes up, he's like, could you tell me how I could get into ministry? And so I looked at him, I was like, why do you want to be in ministry? And he said, well, I just long for uninterrupted hours where I could just open my Bible and pray and sing praise to the Lord. And without the distractions of people all the time interrupting my schedule, like you. I said, there's two things you don't understand. Number one, you don't understand me. And number two, you do not understand ministry. If you are going to fulfill your ministry, you are going to embrace hardship. Let's talk about ministry. What is this word that he uses here? Do you see it in your Bible? He says, fulfill your ministry. So if we're going to fulfill it, we got to know what it is. Um, years ago, I read a definition of ministry from Warren Wearsby, a former pastor of Moody Church over in Chicago. And, and I've grasped hold of this as it's helped me on the days when I've wanted to tap out. Ministry, according to War Warren Wearsby, is taking the resources of heaven to meet human need through loving channels, that's us, to the glory of God. Do you understand here that what this world needs cannot be provided through human means? Education is good, but it can't, need, it can't meet the needs of the soul. So a loving channel is a minister who is willing to grab hold of the resources of heaven with one hand. What is that? It's knowledge of God, it's the truth of the gospel, it's grace, it's love, it's redemption, it's the gospel, it's the truth about God. It's grabbing hold of the resources of heaven with one hand, and then grabbing hold of a needy human with the other, and pulling with all of your might. It's trying to persuade humans that they do not have what they need in this world. What they need exists outside of this world. We have access as ministers to the resources of heaven, and we have access to human need. And if we do that to the glory of God, then Jesus gets exalted, the needs of human get, get met, and we fulfill our ministry. Now, if you're sitting here saying, I'm not a minister, oh yes, you are. And every minister has a congregation of humans that have needs. How many of you are in a family? Raise your hand if you're in a family. Oh, you're a minister. And your congregation is your family. You have a spouse that needs your love and protection and provision and encouragement. And you have a ministry in your home. You have children. Listen, if you have children in your home, please understand, I am not their minister. You are their minister. My job is to equip you to minister to them. So you, you, you're a minister to your family. Secondly, you're a minister to your church. I hope you understand that church is not an event you go to. Church is a family you embrace that has great need. And so your church 
needs you. That's why I need you to come back to church. You have a wonderful staff of pastors. So many of them are skilled in so many different ways. So that when the worship pastor is on sabbatical, you can take the youth pastor, stick him in front of that thing, and we don't miss a beat. And, and in a couple of weeks, that dude's going to be preaching here. So listen, you've got a wonderful, gifted staff that is committed to minister to you. But do you understand the needs of the humans in this area cannot be met by the six or seven pastors that we have on staff and the assistants that support them. Listen, every member is a minister and we need you to embrace a position, a responsibility of ministry in this church. And then not only that, you are a minister to your world. What statement would it make to our community if the members of our church committed themselves to minister to the human need that is out there right now in the community. How many of you are aware there's some need in our community, in our nation, in our world? What if we embrace the challenge to go to places where there are no ministers, to get the gospel in places where the name of Christ is not known? That's what it means to fulfill your ministry. Now, this word fulfill is an important word. The, the word fulfill means to fill up to the max. It means bring to completion. It means follow through on your assignment. Finish what you start. Don't quit. Don't tap out. Don't get distracted. Don't get discouraged. Don't wander off. Because that's the temptation for everyone who starts in ministry is to somehow not finish in ministry. So, ministry's hard. And it's only going to get harder. And yet, I'm inviting you to embrace a position of ministry. So, what's going to motivate someone to embrace committing their lives to meet human needs with the resources of heaven? You're going to have to be a loving channel that's committed to glorifying God. And you're going to need six attributes if you're going to fulfill your ministry. Let's put it this way. In order to fulfill your ministry, your ministry must be filled full. See what it did there? Notice again, in order to fulfill your ministry, your ministry must be filled full of six attributes. Here's the first one. Your ministry must be filled full of love. Loving channels, loving people who are hard to love. Do you see it here in verse 5? He says, as for you, you need to do three things. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. So what does it mean to be sober-minded? What do you have to be sober-minded for? Notice this. Um, be sober-minded because ministry can be intoxicating. To be sober means to be self-controlled. It means to remain calm. Ministers cannot be ruled by waves of emotion. Ministers can't be rattled by the negative response of people that do not appreciate their ministry. We are to remain calm and steadied, anchored to truth. To be sober means to be serious. Ministry involves dealing with holy things eternal 
things, life and death things. The eternal souls of people are at stake. And I can tell you, ministry is weighty when you let the things that you're dealing with create a sobriety in your mind. And to be sober means to be free from every mental and spiritual drunkenness. That's what you think of when you think of sober. It's like, I, I can't be intoxicated. So, so what do ministers get intoxicated with? And hopefully not alcohol, but it means so much more than that. Too many ministers get drunk on self-love. Too many ministers get drunk on the praise of men. Too many ministers get drunk on activity and busyness. Ministry can make you drunk on pride and power and your desire for the praise of people. So Paul knows this. He's like, Timothy, if you're going to fulfill your ministry, you have to be sober-minded. Ministry is for the purposes of loving people, not for the purpose of people loving you. Ministry is... Is, is about feeding the sheep. How many of you are doing the, uh, the 100 days of New Testament? You, you doing that? Raise your hands. How many of you, you, you caught up? It's good. So this week you would have read the last chapter of the book of John and that whole book concludes with this great conversation. Jesus is, is on the beach and Peter went fishing. It's like, oh, he's already given up. You know, he's back to his, his previous occupation. He sees Jesus, he comes on the beach and do you remember Jesus asking him those three questions? He says, do you love me? He's like, yeah. He's like, no, no, do you love me? Uh-huh. Do you love me? He's like, yeah, you, you, you know I love you. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, feed my sheep. Notice he didn't ask, do you love sheep? He said, do you love me? Because Jesus knew the only way that Peter was going to fulfill his ministry was loving Jesus and then feeding the sheep. Sheep are not emotional support animals for ministers who are insecure and need a constant stroke of love and affirmation. Hopefully that comes with some time. Hopefully if you're a well-fed sheep, you're like, thank you, I appreciated that meal. May I have another? Yes, that's the way it's supposed to work. But Paul knew that it wasn't always gonna work that way for Timothy because sheep tend to love themselves more than those who minister to them. So, we must be sober-minded because ministry can be intoxicating. Number two, we must be enduring suffering because ministry can be painful. Paul knew firsthand the pain of ministry. He's in a prison. He's about to have his head chopped off. And he's telling Timothy, that might happen to you too. Fulfill your ministry. There are going to be people that don't understand. You're going to be ministered to hurting people. And do you know what hurt people do? They hurt people. They hurt people who try to help them. And that's the call of a minister. You have two options when people hurt you in ministry. Number one, you can distance yourself from people that hurt you, or you can endure suffering. There is no minister who fulfills his ministry without enduring suffering. Thirdly, he tells him to do the work of an evangelist. 
What do you think of? What mental picture pops in your head when you think of an evangelist? How many of you think of a guy with a lot of wavy hair and hair product and a really colorful blazer? How many of you have that image? Hopefully you don't have that image because that's not what he's talking about. If you're a Christian, you are an evangelist. Here's our task. I want you to see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's what it looks like to do the work of an evangelist. Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, what? The ministry of reconciliation. Grabbing hold of the resources of heaven, grabbing hold of human need, and reconciling the two. It's a ministry of reconciliation. And he did that for us. Therefore, he's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is the work of an evangelist. Here's the reality. Jesus only spent 33 years physically walking the planet preaching the gospel. He left, passed the baton to 12 dudes and said, now you are going to be my ambassadors. I, Jesus, am going to make my appeal through you. And if you don't do the work of an evangelist, you are not going to fulfill your ministry. I don't know about you, but the work of ministry can sometimes cause me to forget to do the work of an evangelist. I mean, especially as the church grown and the administrative challenges and the organizational responsibilities of of a leader, um, my, my weeks can be filled with meetings and conferences and projects and deadlines and emails and weddings and funerals and phone calls and annual planning and budgeting and counseling, small groups and sermon preparation. And I can get to the end of my week and I'm like, did I do the work of an evangelist or did I just do the work of an organizational leader? And so this week has been recalibrating for me. Sometimes I miss the early days when I first learned how to share the gospel and implore people to come to Christ. And I just learned about 10 scriptures and I learned five points, grace, man, God, Christ, faith, that's my outline. And I'm gonna share my testimony and I'm gonna get to the end of that. And like, does that make sense to you? Is there any reason right now you couldn't trust Christ, repent of sin, and commit your life to following Him as Lord. I missed some of those days when the responsibilities of ministry weren't there. And by the way, when he says, do the work of an evangelist, please understand, the primary work of ministry is not the work of healing. It's not the work of feeding the poor, or feeding the hungry, or healing the sick, or protecting the vulnerable, or speaking... um, to the country about corrupt politicians or standing against unbiblical ideologies that threaten the education system or even protecting the religious liberties. All of those are well and good. But if we don't share the gospel of Jesus Christ, we could succeed in all of those things and fail to fulfill our ministry. And whatever kind of work you do through the week, whether you're an auto mechanic or a plumber or a factory worker or in retail, the command in the scripture is to do the work of an 
of an evangelist. Some of you have so much more access to people who are lost than I do. I go to work every day and most of my staff is saved. It was a joke. But you go to work and you see the sin and you're like, man, these people need Jesus. I go to work like, yeah, you people need Jesus, but you're supposed to already know him, right? So I have to be intentional about getting out there among lost people. And God provides a congregation for you people all the time. You'll have intersection with people that I will never have. To do the work of an evangelist means you have to do the work of friendship. Do you know that before people will trust Christ, they, they need to trust a Christian? And so showing yourself as a person of respect and I'm different, I have some distinct things that maybe my life maybe looks a little attractive to you because Jesus has cleaned up some things and I've ordered my life and hey, what makes you different? You have to do the work of a friend. It means to do the work of conversation, it, to have gospel conversations, to, to listen for opportunities to like, well, hey, you know, I was reading my Bible this morning and that, Jesus said this about that. It's doing the work of listening for opportunities and looking for opportunities. And if you can't hear one or see one, then create one. That's the work of an evangelist. Early this week, I got an email from somebody in my church. I want to read it to you. He says, this week I attended a funeral of a family member. After a 15-minute eulogy by the minister, there had not been one mention of Jesus and not one mention of heaven. So they opened the mic and allowed people to speak. One by one, people came and shared about how this family member made delicious pies and played an incredible game of cards. Then I remembered last week's sermon from 2 Timothy chapter 4. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. So I stood up. I grabbed the microphone and I preached the gospel. After the service, a family member came and thanked me. I could tell that something was on his mind, so I asked him, and sure enough, life had happened to him. He's in his 200th round of chemo, and the doctors are saying not to make any long-term plans. We spent the next hour talking about how he can have assurance of his own salvation. With tears in his eyes, he asked me if I'd be willing to stand up and speak at his funeral, as I had done at this funeral. But I shared with him that he needed to start sharing his own faith with those that need to hear it now so that he doesn't have to wait until I do it at his funeral. It was a divine appointment. About 30 minutes after that, I got a text from someone who attends our church. This is what it says. After our meal at a restaurant tonight, we led our server to the Lord. Epic time. We're getting her a Bible today and connecting her with some young ladies in your church. I feel pretty confident she will come. If you're here today, welcome. We're glad you're here. You're in the right place. And welcome to the family of God. On Friday, 
I had lunch with Kent Yoder. If you know Kent Yoder, it's hard to have lunch with Kent Yoder because he's trying to witness to everybody in the restaurant. Before we got to our table, he veered off and started talking to somebody about Jesus over there. A few minutes later, he returned to share the story about how a few weeks ago, he had open heart surgery. And in the recovery room, he has this constant stream of of nurses that are there to make sure he doesn't die and go to heaven. And so he begins conversations with him. Thank you for coming and helping me not die. But if I die, I know where I'm going. How about you? Do you have 100% certainty that if you died right now that you would go to heaven? And he shared about how one of these ladies really responded to that, led her to Christ right there in the recovery room. And within 24 hours, she had an ESV study Bible delivered to her by Amazon, and she's on a discipleship journey. That's the work of an evangelist. Would you allow me just a minute to do the work of an evangelist? If you died right now, do you have 100% confidence that you are right with God because of your faith in Jesus? Jesus died on a cross in your place as a substitute for your sin. There is no other name under heaven given by God whereby we must be saved. If you're relying upon your works or your religious ceremony or your good upbringing or your good behavior, none of those things can save you. You need to trust Christ. Committing your life completely, 100% under his lordship. It doesn't mean you're gonna be perfect, but it, doesn't, it does mean you will change as you respond daily to the word of God as he shapes you into the person he created you to be. Everybody bow your heads, close your eyes. Some of you have heard that story a hundred times. Some of you have been coming to church here for years and you still like, I hope so. I'm trying real hard. I'll do better this week. That's not what it's about. It's about surrendering your life to the Lordship of Jesus so that when the time of your departure comes, and I preach your funeral, I can say, I know where this person is. And if you ever want to see them again, you need to trust Christ too. Now listen, this is a church that values the gospel. You hear it every Sunday. The question is, have you responded in faith and repentance? If not, right now, in your heart of hearts, fully and finally, trust Christ. Surrender to his lordship. You can do that in prayer. Say, Lord, I've heard this. I know it. I've been religious. But I want to know for certain that my sin is covered. I want to follow you. You gave your life for me. I want to give my life to follow you. right here in this moment, if you'll pray that prayer, the Lord will transform your heart. And the evidence that you have been saved is that you will be changed. If you have not been changed, you have not been saved. Trust Him right now. At the end of this service, I'll be here at the front. If you prayed that prayer, if you've received Christ, come to me. Come to others of our staff, our pastors. Go back to the cross. If you leave this auditorium, the first thing you're going to see out in the lobby is a cross. There'll be pastors there waiting to receive you. 
We'd love to schedule your baptism. Some of you have been saved, but you haven't been baptized on the right side of your salvation. We'd love to schedule your baptism. Father, I pray that you would do what I cannot do. I can compel. I can tell the truth, but I cannot transform a heart. By your spirit, would you implore people to be reconciled to God? I pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, look back up here. Here's the deal. I got 10 minutes left. I got five points. We're gonna be just fine. All right, here's point number two. Your ministry must be full of sacrifice. Notice he says in verse six, for I am ready, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Like what's this drink offering thing here? Listen, he's referring back to something in the Old Testament. When the sacrifice was made back in Numbers chapter 15, the final act of the sacrifice is that there was a pouring out of a drink offering before the Lord. Paul viewed his entire life as having been poured out. All of it, it's gone. I have expended everything I have, like an empty cup. It's all, I've done everything that I have done. And he implores us to do the same. It's sacrificing your life. The things that you could do, you don't do those things because you poured it all out for Christ. Sacrifice is necessary in order to fulfill your ministry. We exist to pour out our lives for others. And then he says, the time of my departure has come. Now, this word departure is an interesting word. It actually means to be loosed or unshackled. That word was used to refer to an animal that was being released from a yoke. It was used as a prisoner was being released from prison or from shackles. It was used of a ship that was tied to the dock at the time of its departure, the moorings, the the ties would be loosed and it would set sail for a different destination. That's the sense in which Paul has about what's about to happen to him. He, he knows that the verdict has been given. We don't know if he's got minutes, hours, or days to live. But Nero has declared him guilty. And yet because he knows Christ has declared him to be innocent, he realized my departure, I'm sacrificing my life, a life I could hold on to. I could have more years if I would just renounce Christ. I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna fulfill my ministry. Head's gonna be decapitated. And in that moment, he's gonna be released from his ministry. He's gonna be released from his shackles. He's gonna be released from pain. He's gonna be released from suffering. And he is going to spend eternity with Christ. Do you have that kind of confidence? Listen. If you do not have confidence in heaven, you will not spend your life on ministry because the sacrifices are too great. Third thing, your ministry must be filled full of fight. Your ministry must be filled full of fight. I love this, verse seven. I have fought the good fight. Don't you love that? Especially if you're an athlete, he's using, you know, competition here to, to kind of bring home what his life has been like. His life has been a fight. Now, I want you to notice what he's saying here. Paul is not saying he is a good fighter. He's not saying, I have fought well. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is, I picked 
the right fight. There's a lot of fights. Paul chose to fight the good fight. Every fight is not a good fight. Christians are famous for picking the wrong fights. Christians are known for what they fight against rather than what they fight for. That's why Jesus said in John 18, you read this last week if you're reading the 100 days, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. But my kingdom is not of this world. Listen, if you are fighting people, if you are fighting politicians, if you're fighting ideologies, you are not fighting the good fight. The fight that Christians are in and the fight that Paul is talking about is the fight for the purity of the gospel. The good fight is the fight against our own sin and our own temptations to tap out and to compromise the truth of the gospel. It's this fight involves taking our own thoughts captive, not trying to capture everybody else's thoughts so that we, we re-up every day. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. Our fight is against a spiritual enemy. So ministry flows from a life that knows Jesus has already fought and won the fight on our behalf. That's what he's done on the cross. So we fight as Christians from a place of victory, not for victory. And so whether we get knocked down, get a bloody nose, we get right back up the next day, it's like, I'm signing up again. I wanna fight the good fight. But the fight is most intense within my own heart to believe truth, to know that I'm forgiven, to know that I have the resources to overcome circumstances and situations and worry and fear and opposition. Timothy's going to need to fight if he's gonna fulfill his ministry and so are you. Here's the fourth thing. Your ministry must be filled full of focus. Look at the next analogy. There again it says, not only have I fought the good fight, I have finished the race. How many of you like racing? I'm a racing guy, I'm a race car guy. I grew up around racing, I like NASCAR. I, I realize I just lost credibility with many of you, but that's okay. I love racing. But do you know that in a race, the fastest doesn't always win? Paul is not talking about winning. He doesn't say, I have won the race. I just finished. In order to win, you have to finish. What he's saying is, you don't have to be the fastest in ministry. You don't have to be the most impressive. You don't always have to be out front. You just have to finish. So whatever you lack in fast, make up for in focus. Which means this, racers don't get to pick their own course. You have to stay on course. Somebody else chooses the course. You just have to stay on the track 
and avoid ditches and collisions. That's what Paul's saying. Over time, I just kept taking the, the next step. I didn't always know what I was going to face every day. I just got up, just took the next step. With, with the focus of what is in front of me, with the focus of what I'm bound to, I can't drift, I can't take shortcuts, I'm going to stay focused. Jesus is the ultimate, ultimate example of this, right? Jesus could have got distracted with a thousand things. They were good things. He could have healed every person in the world. He could have overthrown the Roman government. Um, he didn't. Stayed focused because the course that was set out for him led him to the cross, a painful course, and yet he embraced it. And so you may be faced with a lot of things that could distract you and get you into a ditch. Don't do it. Fulfill your ministry. Understand this. God gives different people different courses to run. If you're going to fulfill your ministry, you can't always be looking at whatever everybody else's course is. I wish I was on their track. I, I wish that, you know, I could do something that… I, no. God says, focus on the course, the race that God has given you. Some courses are harder than others. Don't compare your course with anybody else's course. Some legs of the race are going to be harder than others. You may be in a really hard season right now and you're thinking, man, I'm just, I'm just going to quit. This is too hard. I'm out of breath. Listen, stay the course. Finish the race. Keep your focus. Sometimes God changes your course unexpectedly. You may wake, wake up one day and you thought you were going this way and God said, no, we're going this way. It's a detour. Like, I don't, I don't like that detour. Let, finish your race. That's the course that God's given. Don't compare your course with anybody else. Fifth thing, your ministry must be filled full of truth. Next phrase here, Paul says, I have kept the faith. The word kept means I've watched over, protected, guarded. Now, Paul doesn't say, notice what he doesn't say. I have kept my faith. The faith he's talking about here is not some self-generated belief. It's not like, I'm going to try really hard to have faith today. That's not what he's talking about. The faith that is used there is symbolic of the entire body of doctrine that is taught, that God has revealed. He says, I have faith in what God has said. I have faith in what God has promised. Paul's saying, I haven't stopped believing the things I know are true. I haven't dropped the baton. I haven't gotten mad at God when things didn't go my way. I haven't forsaken God because he didn't answer my prayers. I haven't accused God of being unconcerned that all of my friends have not kept the faith. I haven't cursed you because I'm about to be decapitated in a Roman prison. Paul had a lot of reasons to say, I'm done, I'm out of here. And yet he said, I have kept the faith. Ministry requires a mind and a heart that is full of faith in the truth that we've been taught, that God has revealed. That's why we talked about doctrine so much over the last few days. And we're gonna be talking about it more in the days ahead. Number six, your ministry must be filled full 
of hope. And this is the last one. Look at verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who loved his appearing. So he mentions this crown. Do you think, think you're going to have one of those like crystal crowns in heaven? Is that the crown that he's talking about? I don't think it's what he's talking about. This word crown is a word not so much for a king's crown. It was used for a wreath or a garland which was presented to someone who had finished the race. It was a way of acknowledging you've completed your assignment. And Paul's looking forward to receiving that crown of righteousness when he meets Jesus in heaven. So what is this crown of righteousness? What, what is his reward he's looking forward to? Think about it. He's about to receive a crown of righteousness. Paul could have been hoping for freedom from prison or some other reward. He wasn't. You know what he's looking forward to? He was looking forward to freedom from sin. Complete, total, 100% pure righteousness. Now, you may be sitting here like, Trent, wait, wait, I'm following along. I'm trying to believe the doctrine. Aren't we already declared righteous in Christ? Yes, we are. Good job. You're talking about the doctrine of justification, which Paul taught us in the book of Romans. And it goes like this. At the moment you place your faith in Christ alone for salvation, God declares us righteous in Christ. He changes our legal status from guilty to innocent. That is what we call the doctrine of justification. Every believer is declared righteous. So why is Paul looking forward to a crown of righteousness? Because he also taught us the doctrine of sanctification, which teaches us that we are right now progressively and practically becoming what we have been declared. Every day, Jesus makes us a little more righteous in our thoughts, a little more righteous in our actions, at least he should be. That's the doctrine of sanctification as we put off sin and we put on the clothes of righteousness in our practical decision-making. But Paul is looking forward to the doctrine of glorification, which says this. It says that one day we will be made purely righteous perfectly righteous on the day of his appearance where we will be delivered from this body of sin unhindered to completely and fully and obey and worship Christ every second of every day in all of eternity. And Paul says, that's what keeps me going in ministry. I'm filled with the hope of knowing I'm going to receive the crown of righteousness at the appearing of Jesus Christ. He loved to think about the appearing of Christ. What do you think of when you think about the second coming of Christ? If there is any ounce of fear in you, when you think about the second coming of Christ, you don't understand what Paul understood. At the appearing of Christ, for those of us who have been declared righteous in Christ through justification, we will become what we have been declared and receive this crown of righteousness in Christ alone. Ministry. 
must be fulfilled by people who are filled full of love and sacrifice and fight and focus and truth and hope. Let me invite you to stand together. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. About 15 minutes ago, I invited some of you to receive Christ. And I trust you did that. Some of you that have never declared your faith in Christ. And you're going to be tempted just to turn around and walk out of here and not tell anybody. Listen, if you love the appearing of Jesus Christ, you'll have no problem coming and saying, you know what? Today, I think I've been declared righteous in Christ because I trusted Christ alone through faith. I invite you to come at the end of this service. But for the rest of us, can I ask you? Are you still on course? Are you still running the race? Are you focused on the things that matter most? Are you sacrificing the comfort and the pleasure of this world for things that will count in eternity? I want to invite you as a member of the body of Christ to embrace ministry with all of your design, all of your createdness, all of your giftedness, relying upon the resources of heaven to meet human need through loving channels to the glory of God. So if you need to have a conversation with a pastor and just say, sign me up. I'll serve in children's ministry. I'll serve in small group ministry. I'll park a car. I'll visit the sick. Just, just put me, just engage me. And some of you don't need a pastor to have that conversation. You just need to do the work of an evangelist. As you intersect with people that need the gospel, implore them to be reconciled to God through Christ. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for the promise that you've not left us alone. Thank you that we have the hope, the blessed hope, that one day, any moment, we will see the appearing of Christ and at that time receive a crown of righteousness. God, may that fuel us to stay in the fight, to finish the course, to fight the good fight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.